I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club. We're just uh, fresh off a conversation about slices v-, v bars. Yes, that's right. That's right. There's there's a there's a wafting aroma of a freshly uh, freshly baked. What would you describe it as a slice? Well, yeah, I mean, Carl, or a bar. Carl's got a slice competition at work, and I, I raised the question of slices v bars. Mm. And Andrew said to me. In quite, in quite a kind of peremptory tone that it was all about the shape. <laughs> We're going to start on this note, are we? <laughs> it was all about the shape. But I, I, a bar I th- is rectangular? I think there's more to it than the shape. A slice is, is square. But I feel, like, I feel like a bar is something you can cut up. Like I'm talking about bar in the, in the American sense of the word. <laughs> right in. Yeah. Right, right in to comment and settle this dispute once and for all. What is the difference between a slice and a bar? I, mean, I think you're thinking chocolate bar. Like I, I'm thinking bar is in classic American. I mean... I feel like I know desserts. I think it's rectangular. I know, I know my desserts. <laughs> Do you? Well, maybe, yeah, maybe I, I, I know certain desserts. I think, you know, I think you know four or five desserts very well. <laughs> four or five desserts. You've got a PhD in those desserts. What would those desserts be? Like, I feel like, I mean, mud cake? Yeah. I know mud cake well, black forest cake. Anyway, well, that, well, that's on dessert. Pavlova? Club. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Pavlova. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Like Pavlova, trifle, eaten mess, anything where it's all just thrown in there. <laughs> The only place it's I like alcohol. Happened. Yeah, yeah. But that we'll talk about that more on Dessert Club. Sundays. Yeah. Ooh. See, I'm not a big ice cream person. Okay, interesting. I don't, I don't love... I find... I mean, having said that, there's three containers of Messina in the freezer, <laughs> ordered, all ordered in the last week. Sometimes I like ice cream like as a refresher, but it's not or, something more I... More as an accompaniment. Yeah, an accompaniment. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think that's just me. I think that's it's like people. A condiment. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think for people generally, for people generally, ice cream yeah. is a side. Yeah. But uh, by itself, yeah. not huge. Apart from once Messina, remember that, that Messina flavor? I don't even know what it was. It was like an orange chocolate. Mm, that Terry's that, chocolate orange. Well, <laughs> it was Terry's chocolate orange. I don't think that was the exact flavor, okay. but it, I, do love, I do love Terry's chocolate okay. orange. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Pilot Club and Dessert Club are really coalescing the last couple of weeks. You know, we've had a, mm. a sandwich discussion. There's yeah. something the dessert discussion yeah yeah it's nice it's nice uh it's nice you know synergy between the two pods to quote the classic (laughs) film remember me starring rob pattinson i always eat dessert first and before and and after (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. all right okay so um on to our first series there's not really a segue here because mike is probably a pretty fit guy so mike tyson there's uh, not a lot i mean titular mike i mean i mean the opening scene is him chewing that's true. But he's biting off an ear. So it's not really... There's, there's eating. He has an oral fixation. There's eating involved, but it's not... Yeah, yeah. So our first series uh, this week is Mike the Miniseries. Um, so this centers on the life of Mike Tyson. Um, it is an unauthorized biopic, though. So I, I suppose, where are they getting their, their source material here from? Mm-hmm. Probably other unauthorized Mike Tyson biographies. Now, Mike Tyson <laughs> is not involved with the series... When he was contacted, uh, he criticised Hulu for producing it. Right. So, so it's very much unauthorised. Which which I find weird because, like, this feels like such a flattering portrayal of Mike Tyson, <laughs> this pilot. And the whole thing of this Travonto Rhodes playing him, the whole thing is anchored in what appears to be a kind of one-man show. Like, mm. it just keeps coming back to him, you know, alternating between anecdotes, stand-up, you know, confessional stuff, like, all on a stage. Yeah, so, so part this, of me wonders whether this was based on some sort of, you know, uh, stand-up well, I, I, or one-man show that I, he had I, that toured around the country. And it, it seems like, you know, it may well have been based on that. I wanted exactly the same. Like, it feels like it's based on a stage show, right? But it, it's weird, right? Because it because it feels so based on a one-man stage show and it's so flattering it, it seems weird that Mike Tyson's distanced himself from it. It must get pretty critical later on. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's... I think that obviously it feels like it's authorised because it feels like it's drawing on his one-man show. And it feels pretty 
airbrushed. Yeah. Like pretty polished. Yeah. Right? So this is this was uh, Mike, Ta- Mike Tyson's statement verbatim on Instagram. Mm. Don't let fool, Hulu fool you. I don't support their story about my life. It's not 1822. It's 2022. They stole my life story and didn't pay me. To Hulu executives, I'm just a blank. They can sell on the auction block. All oh, right, so, so he the feels, strongest possible. Terms. So he feels he so he hasn't been consulted and remunerated. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, but Hulu certainly- is a streaming version of the Slave Master. They stole my story and didn't pay me. So mm. some pretty some pretty extreme terms. So, there so maybe from- the issue is with not being acknowledged or remunerated rather than the actual depiction of him. Yeah, possibly. So far, it, I mean, so far it feels like PR for Mike Tyson. Well, well, that <laughs> from that, the pilot, right? That may be the case. Maybe that's the issue. Uh, but obviously, you know, Mike Tyson mm. is particularly mm. is particularly sensitive to these senses of you know economic exploitation. Given this is such a mm. an underlying theme of this of this series. Mm. Uh, so as you as you alluded to, the series cuts between the contemporary world um, or the present, where Mike Tyson is delivering a one-man show on stage, which is a combination of, you know, personal memoir, anecdote, and, you know, one-liners, one-liners as well. Stand-up comedy. Yeah, and and it cuts between that Mm. and visions of the past that takes us through the full Tyson autobiography. Now, there's been quite a few texts that have been made about Tyson in Mm. recent recent times. Had you seen the the authorised documentary... Tyson. No, I by hadn't. By James Toback. No, I hadn't. Okay, so that was that was fairly well acclaimed when mm. it was released a decade or so ago. Mm. Um, this one um, is is obviously unauthorized and and cuts between you know very early, so it goes right back to the to the the origins of Mike Tyson. Really, we're trying to you know determine get to the bottom what makes Tyson tick, mm. what makes Tyson Tyson. So our pilot episode called Thief really takes us right back to Queens, I believe it is. Mm. And, you know, Mike Tyson's very, very challenging upbringing. It's interesting because it starts with um, him introducing himself as like the most brutal, most vicious, most ruthless fighter. Like that's kind of how he frames himself. And the pilot feels like an effort to kind of, I guess, partly rehabilitate him or at least explain that. So it's basically like a catalogue of incidents that explain how Tyson became Tyson, like Mm. where this particular brutality that he had in the ring came from so it's almost like an apology for tyson mm. this opening mm. pilot which again it, it, well I, I his reasons for criticizing the unauthorized biopic i get but it, it just is unusual in that like mm. it's a very flattering portrayal yeah well if he's trying to get to the heart of the par- the tyson paradox which mm. is you know he's obviously a you know a brutal a brutal character um both on, in, on in the ring and, and out of it Perhaps off the ring as well. I think probably uh, definitely yeah. out, of, out of the ring, given yeah. the assault. Well, of, of course, assault he was convicted. Stuff. So yes, yeah. Um, yeah. So so there's that, but there's also the paradox of Tyson, where whereby he's also unusually sensitive. Mm. Um, he's you know befriends birds, pigeons. Obviously, he mm. are his friends, and and there is a kind of soft, sweet side to him as well. And this is also you know I guess emblematized in his quite naive, trusting relationship with various father figures in his life, mm. including um, uh, Customato, played by Harvey Keitel, and then uh, you know Don King, who's played by Russell Hornby. Mm. So these figures keep re- recurring in his life. And Th- those two relationships feel very drawn from Rocky, don't they? Like I felt like, in, you know, like... Because the structure of the pilot is basically lots of bad things happen, ends up in jail, 
meets a trainer in jail, trainer introduces him to a trainer out of jail. Like once you hit jail and you hit the trainers, it feels again like very airbrushed, very polished, like almost like almost like a Rocky film in mm. some ways. Mm. I thought, mm. yeah, well, it's it's certainly it certainly you know wants you to to sympathise with mm. Tyson and and you know it's it's aiming to to build empathy with him. So and to kind of almost you know challenge your perception of him like it it presents him like you know i'm I'm using the word the series uses like he's often described as like retarded at school by Mm. people and by teachers he's got a really thick lisp and in Mm. some ways the way he's played or maybe it's how he was seen at the time is almost like stereotypically gay or at least effeminate so Mm. it's like he's like this lisping you know ungainly cute he's told that he's told that he's you know again scare quotes retarded by teachers and peers like it it's very keen to present him as anything but hypermasculine mm. as a child. And as, you know, if anything, he's, he's a victim. Like, he's bullied by other kids. He's beaten so hard by his mother when he mucks up that the police don't even charge him. You know, he's beaten by other kids. And like you said, his only friends are kind of pigeons. And the first fight he has is when one of the bullies who, you know, tortures him pulls the head off a pigeon live. Mm. He's like his favourite pigeon. So he's, he's kind of presented as, like... A victim of kind of, well, of hypermasculinity, but also of just, you know, bigger, stronger people. So it's very keen to make it clear that's where this fighting impulse comes from, just brutality and violence mm. kind of aimed at him. Yeah, and also a quest for approval, for affirmation. Yeah, yeah. You know, boxing, as he says, when he's in jail, is the first thing he was good at. Mm. He gets applauded for it. He gets the right kind of attention. Mm. And that kind of troubling relationship with... You know, being a professional athlete, also a performer, mm. also someone who's who the love he experiences is always conditional upon his performance. And it does it does capture that sense of boxing, doesn't it? As a particularly like a performative sport, like a boxer being a performer as much as an athlete. Mm, mm. Like you can, it's almost like what you see him. What you see in the past is a story of him becoming a boxer. And then what you see in the present is the performance that came out of it. It's yeah. like the, the two are going to link yeah. up in the series at some point. Yeah, and I think what was so notable about Tyson as a as a boxer and a performer mm. was the the brevity of his fights mm. and the brutality. Mm. Um, you know how quickly he reduced his opponents to mm. you know jelly legged, um, you know. Um, you know, recumbent position on the on the on the canvas, and I think is one reason. Oh, sorry, I knocked the microphone over. Which I think is one reason why it works to have this as a kind of short form series. So the mm. pilot's only twenty five minutes. We've we've noticed this is a bit of a trend generally these shorter shows, but here keeping the pilot to twenty five minutes really it's really in tune with that punchiness and mm. as you said the brevity of his fights and mm. the kind of economy of mm. his fights. So I think that's something that really works keeping it and it it's, it opens and closes with fights. So it. It captures that, yeah, mm. that, that economy of his own fighting career. What did you think of the conceit? So the the intercutting between the the present and the past, and this kind of vision of Tyson as this quite jocular kind of yeah. uh, narrator figure. So I, I had mixed feelings about it. Like for the most part, I didn't really like the style of the past for a couple of reasons. Like firstly, I just thought it was. You know, at some, you know, obviously all these terrible things happened to him, right? But given also what he did later on outside of his career, I just, I didn't quite buy the kind of upbeat, funky, nostalgic tone of it. But also I thought it kind of airbrushed him. Like, he's obviously a fascinating character. And I thought actually, like, the flashback scenes rendered him quite generic. Like, I think in, in their effort to rehabilitate him, 
they actually smoothed over some of the things that make him interesting and charismatic. Mm. That said, like Travante Rhodes' performance in the present was amazing. Like, I think I mean, it's a great performance. I mean, Tyson, Tyson is someone who is made for method acting, right? I yeah. mean, beyond a certain point in his career, I reckon like Tyson played Tyson. Mm. Like, you know, he, he took, you know, all the things that made him ungainly and awkward, especially the lisp. And I say this as somebody who had a really bad list myself. And he kind of almost turned them into parts of his performance. So you see it really clearly. I mean, I'm thinking of seeing him on like celebrity roasts and stuff, mm. like where he just, he plays up that part of his, he plays up the idiot role so well. So mm. I kind of feel like that stuff, the method acting, you know, just even hearing, you know, what Toronto, Toronto doing, like the kind of the Tyson accent, there was a kind of inane enjoyment in mm. that. And mm. I thought, so yeah, so he's a character who's made for method acting yeah. because he is always playing himself at some level. That I thought really worked. The stuff in the past I just thought was a, a bit milquetoast. Like yeah. for somebody who is, you know, such an enigma and so charismatic and so problematic mm. in some ways mm. too. It was just, it felt like it wasn't, at some level, it wasn't even addressing the mm. contradictions, mm. which maybe it will, but it was, yeah, I, I found it after a while a bit generic. Mm. Mm. Where does that sit in your dessert canon, the milk toast? The milk toast. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. Well, it's interesting. But do you know what I mean? They're like, this, I, I, yeah, this, this has not got good reviews. Mm. And I think, you know, the two reasons are, as you stated, the, the airbrushing of the past, especially mm. the more problematic aspects of the Tyson character, you know, particularly, you know, the domestic violence convictions and the, you know, serious... But also I think that took the edge off the stuff that was genuinely charismatic in a good way as well. Like, I felt like... I felt like mm. there wasn't a great sense in the past of Tyson... There was a kind of vulnerability to Tyson that was really surprising, but that, mm. that charismatic core... Yeah. It could have been anyone's story. Yeah. The, the second reason, I think, is just the slightly paint-by-numbers quality of this... Mm. this bio series um it's a quite a rote story but there's something just so great about this story that i could i could watch it be told 10 times especially by such a charismatic performer well in quite a punchy short form way so the funny thing was i just made me feel like wish i was just watching tyson stand-up show or watching the main actor doing tyson stand-up show but i imagine as it goes on and it gets more into the fighting and stuff that that method acting, especially, you know, like... Because he's method acting on the in the boxing ring. We don't, we don't see much of the boxing ring in the pilot, but the method acting there is really great too. So I imagine mm. as it goes on and it gets more into that space around boxing, that'll become more compelling. It's, it's funny, like, did you notice in the pilot too that there are a few moments where they resort to kind of recreations of, like, grainy footage, mm. like, of interviews? And it was like, it was clear the pilot was, was yearning for something to break that airbrushed facade. Mm. You know, it was trying to get that grainy, grittier... I think, I think for me, it... it turns on how effectively they do that like i think mm. if it if it keeps up this somewhat generic rags to riches story it, it i'd find that a bit bland and not particularly true mm. to tyson's mm. you know like i kind of you sense it however tyson would have been raised he still would have had this anarchic charismatic energy yeah and you know it might have been used in a better way mm. coming from a different environment but as long as it stays true to that side of him and then as long as it captures the volatility and visceral kind of nature of the fights yeah i mean it's it's, mm. a, it's a fascinating he's mm. a fascinating person mm. well interestingly this this pilot was directed by craig gillespie who also yeah. seems to have directed most of the this one over here obviously he directed i tonya well exactly that's you know, the tonya hardest Harding that's stories. promising you know similarly similar um you might describe satirical tone yeah um, and with a- an unreliable narrator and uh, a problematic personality uh, someone who's you know, from a lower socioeconomic bracket, so there's there's a lot of 
a lot of correspondences here between uh, this and Itonia. And Itonia, I thought, had a kind of almost like hyper-real or hyper-stylized look to it. So that's also something promising too. Like perhaps in episodes to come, this very polished, you know, airbrush style will become something a little bit more surreal. Like mm. maybe it'll go mm. in the other direction. Instead of instead of becoming grittier, it'll become even more lurid mm. and kind of mm. lush. Yeah. And that could work in a different way. And something that Itonia did, I think this does as well, is it, it recognises our relationship to these sports people is actually mediated through the controversy absolutely and mediated through their celebrity that's their a enormous good, celebrity that's, so that's a good way to put it because like i feel like with exactly it's, it's a little bit like what happens in american crime story as well like with the versace and oj and clinton stuff like the visual lushness like the lushness of the visual field almost evokes all those different levels of mediation that stand between you and the reality of it mm. so yeah exactly mm. if this can if this can take that vivid look and gravitated in that direction so yeah i I want to become grittier or i want to become even more extravagantly lush yeah at the moment it's in a you know it's neither yeah Yeah, it's sort of it's in this kind of meta meta fictional Mm. level but i think you know underscoring how we can't approach tyson through anything other than the aura of his notoriety yeah exactly now and his his fights now are so so in in the distant past, mm. but he's still present in our lives as mm. a celebrity, mm. um, and his I guess problematic qualities are mm. also built into that celebrity or star mm. star persona. Um, you know, he's obviously probably most famous now for appearing in the as a cameo in the Hangover, mm. Mm. Um, and his tiger is a alluded to mm. in in later episodes so i've i've, I've actually watched all, all of the um oh, all wow. the episodes that have already been released okay. for this there's only eight mm. um wow yeah that's so, a uh, you're, yeah, you're hard in they're, they're only 20 minutes long and yeah you know a sports biography is mm. just that's kind of catnip for me and i think the 20 minutes look yeah i mean i'm i'm definitely not an out i just um Look, I think it, it's great method acting too. Like it just—it mm. it, it is an absolutely hypnotic central performance. Mm. So mm. look, so it has you on the ropes, I'm, but not not KO'd. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a provisional in, but it's definitely promising. Okay, I'm yeah. a hard in. Okay, on to our next series this week. Um, Trainwreck Woodstock, Woodstock 99. 99, baby. Now this was—I know you saw the film about Woodstock 99. Yes, but I, yes, Woodstock 99, peace, love, and rage. Peace, love, and rage. Um, <laughs> I hadn't consumed any media about it before watching it, so I didn't have much of a sense of it. Right. And I remember... You knew nothing. How, how much? How little did you know going into this? I knew it happened. Yeah. Like, I knew it was a disaster. Did you know why? I knew a couple of people had died. Okay. And I knew that there were quite a few assaults. Okay. But that's all I really knew. And, right. And, and curiously, I mean, we were in year 10 in 1999, so we were... This is our musical... Yeah, for better, for better or for worse. But <laughs> I don't have much memory of it making the news in Australia. Do you? Like, I remember, no. I remember. I think I actually remember my pet because you know our parents are born in the fifties. So Woodstock is their generation. Like, I, I remember my parents actually mentioning reading about it in a yeah. newspaper. But I think actually, to be honest, in nineteen ninety nine and year ten, I didn't have much of an understanding of what Woodstock was. No, let alone Woodstock. I had no idea what ninety nine. So. Look, let me tell you what I what I like what I learned from the documentary. Yeah. Just the overview, and for those who might not be familiar with it, so you know, obviously Woodstock, the nineteen you know sixty eight nineteen sixty eight folk festival in upstate New York, folk and rock mm. festival. There'd been um, several attempts to revive it. You learn this all in the pilot in nineteen eighty nine and nineteen ninety four. 
but finally it's revived in 1999. Well, it seemed like 1994 was quite successful, uh, the revival. Uh, yeah, so true, I, actually. I, know, yeah. I remember that from the, um, uh, the Green Day clip where everyone yeah. was in the mud and that's right. they were dancing. It was, there was, it was a very peaceful So that, that one was, that yeah. was a kind of revival but of sorts. They, they made no money because everyone broke in. And yes. the fences came right. down. Right. Okay. So, yeah. Right. So that's why they had to <laughs> they had to hold this one in. You know, the abandoned you know uh, military base. Well, exactly. So it's held. This one is held in Rome, New York. Or it's funny. Remember, we had a teacher at school called Miss Rome, and she pronounced it Rom. Oh. I wonder if it's Rom, New York. Yeah. Rom, maybe. Rome, New York. Maybe. And it's um it's held at the Griffiths Air Force Base mm. in upstate New York. So, you know, it's kind of an extraordinary event in and of itself so you know the lineup is obviously very different in 1999 from 1968 although there are members of the who and james brown willie nelson willie nelson but what we're getting are more people like jewel bush chili peppers cheryl crow rage against the machine limp biscuit um court and corn is the centerpiece it's a pretty eclectic mix of yeah. mix of artists but yeah. Yeah, they, they 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 you know really operate along a very broad continuum from very soft rock to very hard they do and it feels like the core of the festival the core of the festival's attendees are new metal in spirit like that's <laughs> that's when the festival comes into its own yeah but it's kind of a fascinating counterpoint to the original woodstock because as you said the 994 one didn't make any money so this one right from the outset is kind of understood as a corporate venture yeah. a money-making exercise and one of the the decisions they make is to outsource all food and water you know to private companies mm. who charge an exorbitant amount especially for the water so mm. like a, a heat stroke a heat wave strikes on the weekend of the festival and as one you know attendee says you know you had to drink about a gallon of water an hour to, to stop being dehydrated yeah so you have this kind of dystopian environment where you know, instead of being peace, love and, you know, communion with each other, you have people who, like one one of the people who dies at the festival actually dies of dehydration. Yeah. It um, basically became Guantanamo Bay it became, with a better soundtrack. Well, well, exactly. I mean, this is a weird thing. Like, you know, rather than affirming a counterculture or some kind of critical distance from the main culture or some space outside the main culture... It's actually situated in the heart of the American military-industrial complex, yeah. like at an old at an old airbase. <laughs> yeah, it goes to that 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 overarching concern of of this era, Gen X, the selling out narrative, mm. and this is the ultimate absolutely, sellout. absolutely. Uh, you know, the original because the original band was brought back together in terms of the mm. producers, mm. the the um, all the, the you know concert promoters mm. um, completely portrayed their principles. But also, what's interesting is that these original promoters you know, understandably don't have much of an idea of where music is at now. So it kind of mm. almost seems like they're expecting something kind of folky or hippie, but instead they're getting like The Offspring, Limp Biscuit, you know, Corn. Yeah. And the Chaser of Jewel. The Chaser, yeah. Just just, just what I love to wind me down after... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> after listening to, uh, you know, what is it, Slayer or whatever? Yeah, yeah, like just listening... To, and it's kind of funny, like that 60s pastoral spirit... Is complete like the closest you get is like the to that pastoral vibe is what they call the Woodstock '99 beer garden, yeah, and that just becomes this absolutely dystopian space. Where I was reading about it online, apparently one of the issues with the beer garden was that it was near the toilets and they had no proper plumbing, so people got like trench mouth, trench foot, whatever it's called, trench yeah. foot. Like yeah. there, there was no the sanitation. The water was contaminated with feces. The water was contaminated. And when people tried to recreate those famous uh, scenes of you know mudsliding in '94, they didn't realize they were basically sliding through you know human excrement yeah <laughs> sewage tank runoff and i think that's something this pilot does really well like it really captures like it's got a really good take on the structure and layout of the festival it like it spends a lot of so one thing they talk about is how 
it was very important like you know as opposed to the kind of rock up you know free movement free love vibe of woodstock it was very important here that once people were inside the festival they were contained and discouraged from getting out but also the people couldn't come in yes so they surround the perimeter of this air force base with a kind of eight foot fence and then because the fence is so ugly they put up a peace mural over (laughs) it so just a lot of the a lot of the kind of the pilot is about trying to figure out the layout and the space of it yeah um which is important, mm. important given you know the events that were subsequently uh, transpired. And before we get there, it's probably worth saying too, like something that this harkens back to a lot is the Michael Wadley documentary Woodstock. So it starts with foot. So um, the, you know the canonical film about Woodstock is Michael Wadley's like four or five hour documentary. All the famous footage of acts and musicians and stuff comes from that. Mm. And there are mm. kind of two different film projects. There's something else that's quite interesting about the pilot. Like the pilot's very interested in the film projects that arise from Woodstock. And there are two very different. The first one is um, Michael Lang, Woodstock's the kind of the Woodstock manager. His assistant makes a home video of Woodstock mm. and she films it all on like a camcorder. Mm. And that's kind of in the spirit of the Michael Wadley documentary. Like it's a fly mm. on the wall you know, vision of the artists from the perspective of one of the people who created the festival. So it's mm. kind of a good faith documentary. But then on the other hand, you have this new kind of Woodstock film, which is a kind of pay-per-view film and, you mm. know, films, I guess, early online content or early digital content, you mm. know, on pay TV. was a nice parallel to the actual wall. Well, exactly, the paywall. And, the, and, you know, these films, whereas, you know, Michael Lang's assistant is interested in the music and the culture, these pay-per-view films that arise from the festival have much more of a spring break vibe. In mm. fact, there's one interviewee who, who is called back, I think, from MTV, by MTV from spring break mm. to attend the festival or from some spring break-like. Yeah. So, and foreshadows those, those big debates that, that we're having in the early days of the internet about mm. whether music should be free. Yeah, uh, absolutely. What the sort of pay model should be. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the libertarian or the, mm. the kind of, uh, you know, utopian... Uh, communitarian views mm. about you know, music being you know, one great you know, broad church versus you know, that more kind of cynical mm. commercial exploitation of the labels and, that, and the kind of the erecting of paywalls and the you know, demolition of Napster. Well, e- exactly. And it's, but what's interesting, I guess, about these pay-per-view films is that they're not even really interested in the music at all. Like it's just about people flashing their breasts and people yeah. getting on hijinks. So it's like the festival breeds these two completely different types of films, like the camcorder home footage film, which is in the spirit of Woodstock, then this completely different kind of pay-per-view film that that siphons off all the toxic stuff and intensifies it Mm. and almost displaces the music with it. So it's like, it's really interesting. Like, it's like, it's like it presents, yeah, as you said, it kind of presents Woodstock as a, as a moment of divergence in two new types of media, like this kind of home video mm. authenticity, which harkens back to the 60s, but also this new kind of, you mm. know, paper mm. episode or pay-per-view model. And shows the extraordinary naivety of the the, um, the organisers here mm. as well, because, and one thing this is it's reiterated again and again, is they, they, they wanted to capture and bottle mm. the free spirit of the 60s, but, mm. you know, harness it for commercial means, weaponise it, if mm. you will. And the audience recognised that, and they rebelled partly because they were encouraged to think capitalistically mm. and pursue their own naked self-interest mm. uh, to the exclusion of all others. So they acted, mm. you know, by the end in a quite, you know, self-interested, mm. um, you know, selfish manner. And you can see that definitely in uh, some, the conflict between the, the woman who's making that grassroots video 
who's encouraging people to pick up their rubbish, mm-hmm. you know, use the bathroom, the, the assigned bathrooms and, peop- and festival growers just doing what they like. Mm. Um, and it's funny, something I think that the documentary is really good. Like, I, exactly, as you've said, like it captures that tension. And it, it, the, this first episode really beautifully captures that through the, the set list of the first day. Mm. So it starts with James Brown coming out. So as you said, like taking that 60s, 70s kind of spirit and monetizing it. And the crowd are, you know, polite up yeah. to a point, but, you know, not engaged. And it's kind of a weird spectacle to see like James Brown kind of grooving, you know, in front of this crowd who, <laughs> you know, are either disinterested or cynical. Yeah. And then Cheryl Crow comes out and she starts to get kind of wolf whistles and a lot of kind of misogynist attention from the crowd. And then corn come out and all that atavistic spirit of the crowd, like all that atavistic energy is unleashed. And it's like it's like in corn the crowd finds something commensurate to their own disenchantment. Yeah. But also because I think something that's a bit different about this from Woodstock 68 is there's a really strong sense of apocalyptic mm. expectation and, you know, of both apocalyptic excitement. We'll come back to this with Millennium, mm. our pilot, mm. but also apocalyptic defeat. And so, like, mm. when Corn come out, just it's uh, the footage of Corn, like, Corn are like the objective correlative of the crowd. Like, the <laughs> yeah. footage of Corn. I mean, one of the security guards says, in all my years working at a concert, I never saw anything like this. Yeah. And the footage is incredible. Like the moment corn come out, it's like you can see it's like you can see the sound, like wave after wave of people putting up their hands. And the security guard almost describes it as a paranormal event. He says, you know, huge chunks of the crowd just seem to jump up and move to other places, like to trans trans transmutate where they were in space. Yeah. So tapped in are they to that corn sound. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's extraordinary. It's funny, like I, I kind of like I remember, like, this is, you know, that critic Mark Fisher, he said that, like, what you hear in alt-rock of the 80s is resisting the system. Mm. What you hear in grunge is a reflexive impotence from coming, from knowing that the system can't be resisted. So, like, just saying smells like teen spirit, that da 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 like, it's that sound of, he said it's like that sound of knowing that all resistance will be absorbed. Mm. I feel like that, that sense of impotence and frustration and rage that even the most edgy performance is still a part of this corporate spectacle. Yeah. That rage drives corn and the crowd. Yeah, and rage against the machine. Rage against the machine, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of impotent anger in this music. Which which turns into self destruction. Yeah. So it's almost like the logical conclusion it's like of this, you know, you say you have yeah, this this corporate funded rage is just to destroy itself and destroy the festival yeah. in the process. Yeah. Mean? And like, that crowd footage I mean, I think yeah. there's like watching that crowd footage, I was like this is like watching like a 19th century crowd like or 18th century crowd. Like this is like watching the crowd that started the French Revolution. <laughs> or, or, like, or like in silent cinema, like, you know, in early silent cinema, just the enormous crowds of extras, mm, like mm. just crowds of extras just without number, without face. Like mm, mm. the crowd in this is such a volatile and visceral yeah, spectacle. Yeah, yeah. more for the, the organisers who thought they could, yeah. they could harness this energy yeah. from a productive means. But clearly this music has a has a real, a real uh, impotent rage and anger mm. that is, is not directed at social critique. Mm. It's just directed in such a solipsistic way mm. 
um, like you said, towards you know self annihilation. Yeah. So it's like uh, if, if if like if all rage becomes a corporate product, the best we can do is destroy ourselves. Yeah. And I, I don't know much about corn, so I was looking. I was looking at all music after this. Yeah. Uh, after watching it, get a sense of what corn were like. They never listened to them. And it was interesting. Like the the writer on that, like Stephen Thomas Irwin, he gave several corn albums like four four and a half stars. But mm. he had this recurring take on corn, which was like corn didn't excel at writing great songs. And actually, a lot of their songs are the same. He'd say this even on a four and a half review. He'd say, but what they excelled at was a certain sound mm. and a certain pulse and a certain self-annihilating energy. Mm. And like mm. that, that makes sense. Like just, yeah, it's and that that feels apocalyptic in the festival. Like it's like watching, I don't know, it's like watching the kind of crowd that started revolutions in the past, but they can no longer revolt yeah. because every revolution is a corporate event. Yeah, so they can only destroy themselves and turn back upon themselves. Like it's yeah. like it's like the self. It's like the self-destructive energy of the mosh pit yeah. <laughs> as a late 90s space. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's um, exemplified later on. I, I don't know whether you've seen any more. No, I haven't. Um, when the Limp Biscuit performance comes out, yeah, that's, right. when the, that's when the apotheosis of this self-destructive energy um, occurs. It's when the scaffolding comes down? Or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, and it's it's actually advocated by Limp Biscuit too. Yeah, right. Um, you know, Fred Durst sings a song called Break Stuff. Yeah. And he says, you know, yeah, I think one of the, the the lines from the song is, you know, have you ever felt so angry you just want to break stuff? And it's just kind of wow. this injunction to the crowd. Um, but it's it's not a it's not a revolutionary type of music. No, um, well, it's like it's like it's like music about like the impossibility of revolution. Yeah, it's like there's there's nothing. It reminds me when we were doing my so-called life, like that sense in the '90s with mass media that there's nothing you can do that won't be contained by the machine yeah yeah so, and the, the nature of this crowd as well seems to really attract the kind of tox, toxic masculine mm. white you know well we we, we, uh, we, we recognize we college remember, bro we, we, we remember them from high school yeah yeah. i mean there, there was a type yeah, yeah 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 and it's like it is it's funny isn't it like it's like because we hear so much about that kind of toxic old righty bro in the present but it was definitely a type when we were at high school. Mm. And, and I, it's a definitely a type I associated with particular types of music. It was almost like majoritarian culture yeah. claiming the victimhood of minorities. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. In the music, like grunge, you know, grunge, pe- grunge you know, people were still outsiders. The mm. go- they were associated mm. with goths and mm. that kind of that kind of movement. But this mm. was, this was you know, college bros, you know, popular, popular guys who were kind of almost weaponizing this sense of, you know... Um, victimhood that's in a, a weird way that's a beautiful way to put it because i mean i remember what i found um alienating about it was that you know the music is all about victimhood and yet mm. the people i remember at high school seeing who were into it uh, were the people well they were victimized they were bullies mm. so yeah I, I think that's exactly what it is i mean it's maybe it is music maybe well bullies obviously are self-hating people mm. so they they lash out and they take out that hatred on others maybe this is music for bullies mm. <laughs> this is a genre. I love that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, new metal is is the music of bullies. Well, because I, I was going to ask you, like, what do you think? Because obviously, so much of this is bound up with the sound of new metal. Like mm. the the concert at its core is a new metal mm. concert. The self hatred of a bully bottled, <laughs> transmuted into musical form. That's fantastic. Because I think it's so, it's so much a product of that time. And you know, I guess historically, it's this is a time when maybe the first generation of alpha white bros to grow up with who who weren't absolutely secure yeah. in their kind absolutely of... In their, supreme. Absolutely supreme. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I know it's not exactly the same thing, but there's a, a Weezer song called Pink Triangle. Mm. And I mean, I know it's not exactly the same, but it's adjacent. And it's about how 
the guy, it's basically a self-pitying song about a guy who falls in love with a girl and pines after her and thinks about her all the time, but then one day sees her wearing a backpack with a pink triangle and assumes she's a lesbian and then feels sorry for himself. He's been in love with a lesbian all these years. Mm. So it's kind of a weird song because like it's, it's like, you know, I think it's mid-90s. It's a time when things aren't great for lesbians. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the whole song is like, oh, poor me, it's so hard to be in love with someone. You know, If she wasn't gay, she'd go for me. But, mm. So it's a, it's a similar... Mm. But I love that because that, that's, exactly, that's mm. exactly how it felt at school. That, that's what confused me. I mean, I remember buying the Offspring Americana. <laughs> I mean, that must have been a very tortured purchase, that it was, one. It was the end of year eight. I remember buying the Offspring Americana because <laughs> I wanted to be normal all the while while closeted listening, like my closeted listening was Enya, the memory of trees. <laughs> so I, I was just, I was mainlining Enya. I was all about Enya. But I remember listening to it. I, I Did remember, you- did you listen to the album? I did, did listen to it. I listened to it a couple of times. Okay. I, I, I never listened to it again. But <laughs> but it's exactly what it was. Like, it's that sense of, you know, it's interesting. Like, this theorist I love, like Barbara Johnson, who has this quote. Uh, I only know it because it went viral. Like, it was on Instagram and stuff a couple of years ago where she said, that you know, the issue with people who are in the majority, you should talk about feminism. And she said that the reason that men find it hard to think of women as victims is because anybody in the majoritarian position wants to arrogate victimhood as their own. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So when a majoritarian group start to lose their hold, mm. the first thing they claim to is that right of victimhood. So mm. I, I love that as a way, as a read on new metal. Mm. <laughs> I think mm. it's exactly what it is. Yeah. And, and you see it, you see it writ, writ large yeah. in this festival. And it also you? explains the sort of behaviour that occurred later on. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they had, it had sort of the iconography of revolution where they're, they're mm. knocking down, this, but they're mm. knocking down the peace wall. Mm. And then they, you know, they, t- they take down panelling that was designed to protect them. Mm. Um, they, they start knocking down the towers. They burn ambulances. Mm. Um, and they start sexually assaulting the women there. So mm. it's their behaviour is bullying, mm. um, is, is victimising the, the, the weakest and most vulnerable people in the crowd. Mm. Um, so I think there's definitely something mm. to be said for them actually embodying the values of this music later mm. on mm. Um, in the, the kind of... When the music festival, you know, become, you know self-immolates mm. um, quite... You know, dramatically. I mean, you know, could we take it one step further and say it is not that different to the logic of the shooter? You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, because so many shooters in America they target public institutions yep. like healthcare and education and mm. support centres. So it is that kind of target of, yeah. I mean, it it is that logic of the shooter. It's like you know, I my rebellion means nothing. So I'm gonna destroy myself, but I'm gonna destroy, take other people down with yeah. me. So it's, yeah. it's, and that's why I found it interesting too. That like, remember they say early on that one of the reasons they wanted to hold Woodstock 99 was as a response to Columbine, to kind of mm. engender peace after Columbine. But yeah. in terms of this, I mean, the logic of, especially the kind of white male shooter, yeah. is exactly the logic of this festival yeah. in some ways, yeah. isn't it? And one of the ironic uh, elements of this festival mm. is that at the end they wanted to hold a candlelight vigil for the victims mm. of Columbine. Oh, right. And those candles ended up being you know, igniting the flames that... Ended up consuming wow. the whole. I didn't know that. <laughs> the whole of the, um, the the festival grounds. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. that's it's full. Of, yeah, it's full of rich, rich ironies. This that's the allegory, this isn't this it? Series, like the yeah. wow. Yeah. yeah. Funny, I mean, just as an aside, I remember reading. I was reading on Wikipedia about it, and Anthony Kiedis came out and said encourage people to continue lighting the fires. I think I'm not sure well, that's true. Uh, and compared it to Apocalypse Now, they they came. To, <laughs> so the, one of the organisers or uh, producers mm. spoke to him backstage and said, you know, you need to settle this crowd down. And because uh, there was there were fires ablaze mm. already, just but small scale ones, mm. and the Red Hot Chili Peppers came back out and, and sang an encore of um, a song called Fire, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, so look, the performers have, I think, some culpability. But I, mean, I, I, I just, I mean, I, I'm not saying Anthony Kiedis inside anything. I could be misremembering that. But just to yeah. compare it to Apocalypse Now, like it is, yeah. that's such a great comparison too, isn't it? Like this sense of an anarchic energy that can barely be. Yeah. But no, look, I think that it's great. Yeah. It, it's music for bullies. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a yeah. little bit like our reading of Friends, which is that Friends is like about the bullies trying to act like they're the outcasts. <laughs> but that's, that's another podcast. Yeah. There's something, something quite, um, you know, brilliant about the structure of this as well. Three mm. parts each tracking one of the days mm. um, and because this ended in such you know an, an incredible conflagration like mm. it, it has incredible energy mm. all the way through i'm surprised you didn't watch it all no well, I, I just had to watch it immediately it was kind of funny like i, <laughs> I had to mainline that it was kind of funny like i i think that it a couple of weeks ago we postponed it a bit for the podcast i i kind of wanted to just discuss the pilot in isolation okay but i i, I mean i'm obviously we're obviously both <laughs> yeah. guardians and it's yeah just just give me all all the Woodstock yeah. 99 content. It's like the Fire Festival. You know, I watched two movies about it. I yep. still want to know more. It, There's still hidden. What you know? What was behind that cheese sandwich? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's funny, like watching it too. I'm like, I want to watch a fictional series about this. Like, I, I yeah. want to, I want to watch this space come alive from all angles. I mean, it also is just kind of cathartic because it's like, it. I don't know. It's just like seeing a certain sector of our own years that yeah. I think we both felt somewhat alienated yeah. from, yeah. and being like, oh, maybe the problem wasn't us. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, I mean, we would true. have been, like you know maybe the people like us who would have preferred like Jewel or Rage Against the Machine or Cheryl Crow, maybe maybe we were okay. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. The kids so, were all right. Rage Against the Machine, I stand by. But you know, in terms of I'm not massive with my music, but in terms of values, yeah. But the new metal stuff at the no. time, I was like, what it's is toxic? This? It's toxic, toxic genre. Um, Sorry to alienate new metal fans. <laughs> no, it's 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 very true. Yeah. There is something you know, obviously the. The Fire Festival documentaries mm. were such great examples. They of are great. Schadenfreude. Yeah. And the people say, well, this is less so. But I actually think there is quite, you know, obviously there were tragic elements to this, but there is also a great element of Schadenfreude here as well, mm. seeing, seeing, you know, pretty toxic people kind of, you know, destroy themselves and the venue that, you know, was designed to kind of venerate their music. It's like seeing... It's like seeing the real yeah. of our kind of of our of, of our most volatile high school years. So yeah. like, yeah, I, I loved it. Hard in. Yeah. Well, I've seen it all, so you know it's an un, unqualified recommendation. For yeah, me. yeah. All right, Billy. You binge watched Rami. You liked Mike. You're gonna love Mo. I feel like it was great doing Trainwreck, <laughs> but the only issue was that it's broken what could have been a perfect like alliterative episode, like we did Mike Mo. Millennium. Millennium. <laughs> Very we, true. We love, we love our one title. <laughs> it's all the rage. It's all the rage. Mm. Economy in title. So Mo is probably the most economical title yet. Mm. Um, so it is a uh, American comedy drama mm. series which is streaming on Netflix. Uh, it stars Mo Amer, who is the, uh, the eponymous Mo. Um, nice use of eponymous. <laughs> it's one of those words just dropping it in every now and then. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah got to put it in there. I like that. Got to put it in there, mm. but not in a milk and toast way. Look, I thought I thought, <laughs> I thought milk and toast was good. You had a little bit of milk and toast right then. I thought milk and toast was good. Yeah. <laughs> so it's this series is loosely based on on Mo uh, uh, Mayer's life in uh, living in um, Houston, Texas. Um, he is grew up a Palestinian refugee, mm. um, and uh, while he was a more peripheral character in the Rami series, here he is the the hero of his mm. own story. Um, I think what's quite interesting and, and what this series sheds light on is obviously the plight of Palestinian uh, refugees who are living in America and for all intents and purposes naturalised American citizens but don't actually have their mm. um, their citizenship or living the in right to work. Kind of limbo. Yeah, living yeah. in a kind of perpetual limbo. Mm. Um, 
in the system here. And I, I, I was I was concerned about this series that it might, you know, essay this kind of, um, you know, hipster vibe or maybe a kind of toxic bro energy. Mm. Um, and while Mo has some of the hallmarks of that, you know, he drives a muscle car, and he wears his hat backwards, mm. you know, he's into rap. Um, there is something quite, mm. you know, that elicits empathy about yeah. his his situation here and the way he deals with it with a slight offbeat sense of humour. It's funny, like, it. I, mean, I thought this did a great job of just kind of capturing, like, the vibe and texture of, I guess, Muslim Houston mm. <laughs> or, like, you know, mm. the Palestinian community in Houston. Yeah. I thought it was a really immersive Yeah, Houston's watch. obviously a very interesting city. It's got a lot of, it's got a lot of um, immigrants. Mm. Um, so it's one of the big, um, you know, immigration, mm. um, you know, magnets in the United States. But it also... Doesn't it's almost like an LA type geography mm. where they're very concentrated in you know exurban well, it's funny, areas. I, I recognized it in the first couple of seconds. Like, you know, that Houston is quite kind of interesting association to me because once en route to New York, Carl's family, I spent 12 hours in Houston between yeah. flights. So I've only ever been there for 12 hours, um, but it was a full day, like it was like 10 to and it was 12 hours in the city. Like, mm. you know, I had like a 14, 16 hour gap between flights, mm. and it's where I took my first ever Uber. Ever, ever yeah. in Houston, in downtown Houston. Yeah. So, you know, you know that kind of intensity you have when you're slightly jet lagged. That receptivity. Every part of Houston that I saw was etched in my mind. So from the moment I saw that opening highway and the bridges, I was like, "Oh, this is definitely Houston." So yeah. In my mind, it's got that. Yeah. It has a very strong sense of place mm. and you know, community as well, mm. um, and it's authentic mm. in that depiction as well. Something I think it does really well is capture how much that kind of Muslim Houston public sphere i guess coalesced around strip malls mm. like basically the whole show is set at strip malls yeah like it starts with him being let go from a mobile phone story works out at a strip mall then it moves to him at a hookah restaurant at a strip mall and it's almost like it's almost like the public sphere is at its most volatile but also it's most promising in that kind of slipstream between the car park and the shops like so there's a great scene where after he can't get you know legitimate work at a strip mall he starts stealing yeezys out of the back of his car yeah and intercepting customers as they come to and from shops yeah and that's where actually i think the best conversation in the film happens in that space yeah that's great and there's something there's i think it's definitely something Mm. you know these strip malls a motif there's something i think interesting about the liminality of well, these spaces that, and, that's and I think what's the way powerful that, yeah, yeah the but, way that, that that reflects the liminality of you know obviously Palestine as a quasi nation and also the liminality of his status as for all intents and purposes a naturalised citizen but someone who yeah. is not legally entitled well, it's to like, live or work there it's like in the same way the series is always slipping between English and Palestinian mm. it's always kind of poised at the threshold of that strip mall and sometimes in a volatile way so there's a kind of the most volatile scene, I think, happens at the cusp of the strip mall. Like, there's a, a great kind of turn at the end of the episode where um, Moe's in a supermarket and he gets shot by, you know, what turns out to be a white shooter. So there's yeah. a kind of, you know, great irony there, like the Palestinian immigrant actually targeted by white shooters. Yeah. But the most volatile moment actually isn't the shooting. It comes a bit later when he's, again, in that car park space and the paramedics are attending to him. And all of a sudden he realises that, A, he'll have to foot a massive bill if he lets them take him away in the ambulance. And B, they'll realise he doesn't have, you know, he's not undocumented. Papers, yeah. yeah. So he actually, that's the, the riskiest moment in the in the strip mall car park. Mm. So he abruptly leaves. And then he goes to another strip mall and gets like a mate who's a tattoo artist to take the bullet out and to dress the wound. Yeah. So it's like, for better or for worse, 
that it was almost like that space between strip mall and car park or strip mall and highway is where the public sphere of the film unfolds and as you said it's kind of liminal it's kind of there's something wonderful about the way it takes these really transitory spaces mm. and turns it makes them homely mm. again very la like mm. that that just constant strip mall yeah. endless sprawl and while mo is a, a palestinian mm. there is a sense that he occupies again this liminal space culturally as yeah. well because he's dating a mexican catholic yeah um you know he's engaging in american culture he's got black friends he speaks fluent spanish it's very black adjacent in particular like there's a there's a great scene where he he's with his girlfriend and his best friend and we learn that his best friend's african-american we learn that they i think both their fathers were in jail or something there's some connection mm, between their yeah. fathers so they think of themselves as brothers so yeah. he's, he's a black man is his brother but also at the same time his girlfriend who's mexican um confesses that she voted for kanye yeah. in the election so like there's there is a sense that like the expansiveness of black culture and the generosity of black culture acts as a kind of umbrella mm. for other ethnicities mm. in a really cool way. Mm. I, I just love, I just love the kind of vibes. The, well, just the fluidity, the rhythm of just going from strip more to strip more. Mm. Like, mm. like you know, in Jersey where Kyle is, it's strip more central, and from a distance, there's something a little bit bleak about strip malls. Mm. But then when you get into their rhythm, and like, there's something really comforting and homely yeah. about them. I just They're like little ecosystems. Yeah, yeah. That exist, you know, in a stream. Yeah. You know, like little lily pads of of co- and obviously little little lily pads of culture here as well because <laughs> you know they're they're occupied in Houston particularly by some really great authentic. Uh, you know restaurants mm. and it's it's a public sphere so yeah. like and it's almost the entire film t- takes place there and whenever anything happens it's you know i mean it's interesting like whenever anything happens it's about orthodox muslim stuff mm. even then it's never too far from that inclusive space of the strip mall so there's mm. a great scene where he's um skyping zooming with some relatives in palestine and he tells them that his girlfriend is not muslim and they're shocked for a second and they're like oh by the way is the phone store stocking the Samsung Galaxy? So yeah. it's like the strip mall becomes this place where Muslim culture blends with other cultures. It's mm. it's really inclusive, mm. and yeah. I, I thought I, th- I, I think, think it's it, actually really evocative. Yeah. yeah, I think epitomised by the fact that Mo always carries around a little uh, bottle of olive oil so he can make his own hummus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's literally, you know, turning the ingredients for America. Yeah. Um, and you know the, the, yeah. the Palestinian olive oil of his homeland into this kind of uh, yeah. hybrid entity. I, l- I liked his rant still. At the rant, like one minute there'll be a rant about the 1967, you know, borders, border disputes in the Middle East. So then there'll be a rant about chocolate hummus. It's yeah. kind of funny. Like I know it's a bit of a random thing. He reminded me a bit of James Gandolfini. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. Like it's an early scene where he's talking about the Godfather and like discussing the Godfather films. And I got slight Tony Soprano vibes too. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Just something about the inflection. Yeah. This I think. I think, and I've watched the second episode of this as well. Okay, and you get cool. that sense that he is also like Tony Soprano, you know, carrying around this false bravado mm. to to mask a real internal fragility. Mm. And this actually becomes a little bit of an addiction uh, memoir as well in oh, the second episode. And okay, I, I'm kind of I'm all in on addiction memoirs. Yeah, so yeah. Um, that was something that I really I really um, found quite compelling. Mm. Um, but this this series really stuck up on me. And me too. Look, I, you know, I didn't know much about it as well. Um, it's kind of funny. Like, I think we do see, we do see there are, there are certain kinds of shows like Betty was one, the skating one that are all about the vibe. But I thought this, this did a really good job of blending that with a bit more character development. Just yeah. look, I thought it was really beautifully textured. Like mm. it's a it beautiful sense of place, great mm. sense of 
strip mall culture, moving from strip mall to strip mall. Mm. I'm an in. I thought it was really strong. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this, this captures a really strong sense of marginality. Mm. And I think in, in a kind of, not in a, in a kind of, you know, misery porn way, but no. in, a, in a genuine, authentic... It's a buoyancy, you know, liminal, liminal yeah. quality of the of the refugees' plight. It's like, it's like one thing that any refugee or immigrant has to do to some extent is familiarise themselves with the lexicon or the vernacular mm. of a culture. And in American urban space, the strip mall is the vernacular. Yeah, so it's like yeah. instead of the way he acclimatises and takes from and gives back to American culture is through his, you know. Encounters with strip mall culture, yeah. so it's, it's kind of quite a yeah. beautiful. It reminds me a little bit of um. Yeah. He he even over over identifies with strip mall culture by yeah, yeah. by operating just at its at its out of yeah, its periphery when he's selling out of his boot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminded me a bit of like Sean Baker, like you know, Tangerine, Red Rocket, yeah. Florida Project. That's, that's a good call. That taste for the sprawl. Yeah, and, and for the kind of affection the pleasure for the sprawl, affection, the pleasures yeah. of the sprawl. Yeah, it's like reappropriating it. Mm. Um, you know, like like making it homely again, like mm. you said. Well, like it's like in a place where, like, for many people, you know, I'm sure if we were there too, teachers included, not just immigrants, the teachers, you know, where real estate is so prohibitive, the public sphere becomes, you know, a different kind of, you know, a different kind of home. Mm. 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 So I, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, yeah. I'm an in. Okay, onto our archive corner this week. Yeah, yeah. if you thought Fox Mulder was creepy, just wait until you meet Frank Black. Frank Black. Now you know that. <laughs> One of my favourite of all, I'm not sure you call it a genre, but maybe a mode or something, is 90s apocalyptic cinema. So <laughs> millennial Panic. Millennial Panic, but also Millennial Sublimity. Yeah. So films that gesture towards the millennium as an awakening of something unknowable. Yeah. So yeah. obviously The Matrix, Blade, Pi, like films that have this kind of hushed reverence and fear mm. for the millennium. Mm. So well, it was an impossible horizon in the 90s to absolutely. think that at one point, the clock would tick over and you'd be in the year 2000. Mm. It was like being propelled into a science fiction It was unthinkable, movie. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and so this series is this, so this is... this series is about that. I love it that this series aired from October 25, 1996 to May 21, 1999. Absolutely. This movie, it, it couldn't last into the, into no. the new millennium. It and just couldn't. <laughs> it's, and it's all about the millennium as a kind of impossible limit. Yeah. That can, that can be... Imag- like you can get incrementally closer to it, but you can never traverse it. Yeah. So just a bit of background, it's, it's uh, Chris Carter's um, second series after The X-Files and it arises from an X-File episode and it is in some ways extraordinarily of a piece with The X-Files. Mm. So the basic premise is that you have the main character, Frank Black, played by Lance Henriksen, who is a retired police officer. He, he's been working in Washington, D.C. for 10 years and relocates to his home city of Seattle with his wife and daughter. Yeah. And he's, he's a member of... So, <laughs> this would be a really, a really interesting pitch. Mm. It's like, so what is Frank Black? Is he a detective? Is he a well, psychic? What's well, interesting? So <laughs> is he a p- criminal profiler? <laughs> so it's interesting. Yeah. So he, he we, we we learn stuff about him gradually. Like we learn that he has a kind of so he he immediately links up with some of his old cop buddies to help them solve a case, and it emerges that he has preternatural abilities to to read serial killers. Yeah. He has excellent forensic abilities, but also he has and he has an ability to put himself in the mind of serial killers. Yeah. But that, and, and at first that he just He can also play VHS tapes. He can play VHS tapes. <laughs> but it's funny at first it seems like that's just a kind of figure of speech, you know, he can put himself in their mind. But it seems as it goes more and more it's going to be a kind of literal thing. So it's it's like a forerunner of 
what's the main character in Hannibal? The um. Oh yes. Yeah, you know, he, he yes. can literally. Yeah, I was thinking that he can that, literally. I got Hannibal echoes there. Yeah, yeah, literally put himself in the mind of serial yeah. killers. And he's like an empath, the ultimate empath. The ultimate empath. And it and this is something that's by no means clear in the pilot, but just reading ahead, he he's a member of a group called the Millennium Group, mm. which is on the one hand a kind of you know a kind of I guess a investigative group that are operating outside the normal parameters of law and order. You know, but are also a kind of apocalyptic cult in and of themselves, <laughs> and it, it's they're it's like ba- a shadow cult. They're they're a do good cult. Exactly, and it's based on a group called the Academy Group, a real group who started off as just this, like a an independent investigative agency, that eventually became a kind of cult like mystical society. So oh. that that very fact, I think, is emblematic of the series and its paranoia about power. Um, so it's interesting. Like I think it's a really interesting series to compare to the X Files because mm. on the one hand. It's absolutely the work of the same creator, right? Yeah. So we start with Pacific Northwest, moody <laughs> establishing shot, rain. Seattle. And oh, a, there's a lot of rain in this room. Ab- so a much lot rain. Of rain. <laughs> well, it's interesting. We'll come back to that. I think the rain here, what we're seeing here is the rain, the wetness of something like Seven or of yeah. The Matrix or a, a very yeah. particular kind of late yeah. 90s rain, yeah. um, mid-90s rain. Part of me wonders whether the, the key differentiator between this and The X-Files was this was a harder R-rated X-Files. Absolutely. So it's very violent towards the end. It's also a descent narrative into, you know, the seamy underbelly of Seattle. So it opens with a a peep show scene Mm. and then we go to a a, gay beat Mm. and then we, you know, disinterring graves. Mm. So it's, you know, the X-Files, you know, its it's horror was a bit more subtle and, you know, discreet occurred on the edges just outside the realm of the visible. Well, this horror is really visible. I think that... It's Baroque gothic there are two things i think that that yeah i agree and so two things that I, I i kind of take away from that like i think something you start so it's also worth saying that this came out since this came out in 1996 we're very much dealing with a mid-90s aesthetic here rather mm. than an early 90s aesthetic yeah. so i think it's we'll periodize it that way i mean i think that something you start to see in a lot of mid-90s films is what i often think of as this and it's a term that i sense was used quite a bit at the time too the sense of emergence so mm. the sense that the city we see the world we know and the physical reality around us is gradually being infiltrated by something we can't see. Mm. So there's this sense of an incipient network or communication channel or virtual sphere that we can feel and sense mm. and almost intuit is coming but can't access yet. So I feel like what you see in a lot of 90s kind of films in the late 90s is this fascination with an expanded kind of underground space mm. and often like a a liquid space, a dank, wet, dripping underground space mm, mm. that's somehow, you know, cavernous and labyrinthine, but also virtual. Mm. So it's like a dark web before there was a web. Exactly. So for me, the product, the, the, the clearest example is something like The Bone Collector, mm. where you have like mm. Angelina Jolie plays a rookie cop who's got to investigate a series of murders that take place deep beneath the city surface. Mm. And Denzel Washington, play, we've talked about this, plays a tetraplegic police officer who can mm. only operate one finger. Mm. But with that one finger, he maps this underground space virtually yeah. for Angelina Jolie. So this... Yeah, so these underground networks. Underground networks. Uh, and that are physical kind of, infrastructure, I guess, you know, acting as kind of motifs for an early internet. For the virtual. Was, yeah, but also the, the, the physical... The physicality you know, of the early the internet. physicality, yeah. Physical infrastructure of mm. the internet. You know, the way that, you know, in early metaphors of the internet, you know, Al Gore described it as the information superhighway. Yep. You know, there was that sense that we could only really view it in terms of, you know, sublime physical architecture. And so that reminds me, you know, the other night we watched um, 
we watched the second episode of the X Files, which is called Squeeze Slither. What's the second squeeze, one? Yes, yeah, Squeeze. Yeah. And it's about uh, a creature mm. who comes in, makes his way into buildings, you know, ostensibly human creature, mm. who makes or a creature in a human form who who makes his way into buildings through precisely the conduits that we used would be used for the internet. So mm. through you know ducts, through holes in walls. Um, I think also a film that's quite a bit like that is Bound, the Wachowski mm. film. Mm. So it's you know it all takes mm. place in an apartment block, and it's obsessed with the thresholds between different spaces. So I think. That so exactly it's it's this it's this desire to map those spaces where physical and virtual life come together. Yeah, and so I think as you said here, there's an obsession with underground spaces, like mm. with descending catacombs, with, almost. catacombs <laughs> absolutely. So as you said, there's there's a strip club. We have scenes beneath highway overpasses. The killer takes his body to this tiny space right beneath a suspension bridge. It can only mm. house a single car. The victims are buried alive, and we have that gay cruising site mm. as the epicenter of all these underground spaces. Mm. So I think there's there's that on the one hand. On the other hand, though, with the violence, like something I think. You know, in the X Files, like you have this very serene image field, like mm. it's it's pellucid. Like mm. we've been watching it and had moments where we're just we're breathless with how beautiful it is. Mm. But you have these disruptions, like these moments of glitch that come, say, with UFO mm. experiences. Here, I think the glitch is much more pronounced. Oh, so, like it's like it's, grunge. It's exactly it's much grungier. It's much grittier, in a whole lot of ways. Like. The sound changes very rapidly. So there's a scene where they'll be playing like, you know, grindcore mm. and then it shifts to Porter's head right away. Mm. There's lots of scenes of the Lance Henriksen character kind of passing, you know, video footage, like glitchy video footage. Mm. But even the way in which the victims are handled, like their eyes and mouths are sewn up, mm. even that kind of messiness on the surface of the body mm. is a kind of glitch effect. So it's a much more fractured mm. and dissonant and just glitchy kind of aesthetic I think than than the original X-Files I think epitomised by the transition from David Duchovny a younger you know probably more handsome smooth faced gentleman to uh, Lance Henriksen who's just got a wonderful wonderful kind of hangdog face Mm. um, lacrimose expression Mm. Uh, his face looks like a rubber mask Mm. and it's even commented on (laughs) <laughs> by his wife like his appearance uh, his appearance he looks like an ex-boxer yeah yeah so there's you know there's a real um you know greediness grunginess uh tactility that's folded into this pilot and it is like it it reminds me of like films like i mean it's funny like i remember i, I read on wikipedia Hill 07 jason absolutely yeah and 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 also forerunner of blair witch as well yeah. like that style like it's funny i read a review on um on wikipedia but i can't remember who it was but it was kind of saying that the person was saying, I like it, but I get the feeling it wants to do me harm. And it's that, remember at the time there was that sense, we, we take it for granted now, but those early digital glitch images were so unpleasant and so abrasive yeah. to watch. So it's not, it's not like the X-Files in that sense. I mean, yeah. So, and I also think like with the X-Files, like there's this fascination, I think, in the early 90s with kind of arcane types of knowledge, mm. with like a new sense of the occult that I think actually if you if you historicise, it comes from widespread knowledge of the serial killer. So, like, mm. in the 70s, the serial killer is still not really understood as a figure. Mm. In the 80s, it's popularised. And in the 90s, a serial killer has become part of popular, popular discourse. Mm. But is still such an unfathomable figure that it, it generates this whole new sense of yeah. an occult knowledge yeah. field. And also the, the attempt in those early, early trials to blame, mm. you know, aberrant mm. behaviour and this kind of, you know, sociopathic behaviour on 
um, cults, yes, on death cults, yes, on you know, um, satanic, you know, satanic panic ideas. Whereas, in fact, the serial killer, the idea of the sociopath, I think, is more terrifying than any cult. Yeah, but I think what you see here is like so in in the X Files, a serial killer becomes a, a pressure point. I think for all that arcane knowledge. Mm. Here, I think it's almost like we go from arcana or the arcane to the apocalyptic yeah so the serial killer becomes like a a forerunner of apocalypse like a prophet of yeah. apocalypse so yeah. it's that moment in the 90s that pressure point between this this fixation with arcane and marginal knowledge on the one hand is dredged up by digital technology but also a fascination with the arcane knowledge that will forever lie beyond digital yeah. technology now writ in an apocalyptic yeah. apocalyptic register and again so digital technology mm. is an apocalyptic force but also the apocalypse is something that will be outside of the digital. Of course, you know of course, I mean? yeah. yeah. So, of course, those, you know, in the kind of, you know, Y2K panic, both of those forces, you know, mm-hmm. the panic about technology and, you know, panic about, you know, the, the appending apocalypse were intimately entwined. Mm. And this show captures that. Part of me when I was watching it um, made me think, you know, Frank Black has so many different jobs, consultant slash, you know, criminal profiler mm. slash psychic. Is he just the internet? Well, absolutely, absolutely. Frank Black, the internet, absolutely, or like this new, this new, like, because I think it's about what the internet does to knowledge. So on the one hand, the internet gives us access to this mm. kind of apocalyptic knowledge and it's arcane and apocalyptic knowledge, but also it makes us even more fascinated with the stuff that eludes the internet's grasp. Yeah. So it's like it's almost like Frank represents this kind of expanded knowledge field where we're kind of on the one. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. on the one yeah. hand this new awareness of the occult and yeah. this new sense of the occult as a kind of indiscriminate, promiscuous thing. Well, it's this scene where he um, he's a consultant and he gives a very detailed, um, you know, rundown of the, the criminal's uh, behavioural profile mm. and past history to the, to the uh, you know, audience of FBI agents. And it, it seems to be basically everything that you could find on a basic Google search. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so this was, he was reciting poems this is what the poems mean and all the fbi profiles are like oh my god mm. <laughs> you're just like all of this could be solved with a simple you know mm. one minute google search mm. um perhaps i don't know that was that was you know groundbreaking at the time no but you're right though people are often asking him like where does your knowledge come from what's <laughs> yeah. your knowledge base yeah i think that's what it is like it's like th- networked network knowledge you know? and i think that 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 networked element is also what I find so fascinating about the role that gay cruising plays in this. Mm, so mm. the serial killer is somebody who's he's, he's repressed homosexual. He's drawn to kind of gay cruising sites, but instead of you know having sex with the people at those sites, he well he has he has an interesting modus operandi. He he abducts them, he mm. sews up their eyes and mouths, mm. and he buries them underground with the heads of women that he's killed. So to kind of remind them to reproach them for their own homosexuality. Mm. But it's almost interesting because it's like I feel like. The way it presents, like in the in the pilot's imagination, these gay cruising sites are the kind of the pinnacle of the occult. In that they're, mm. they're the place where pu- public and private life come together, yeah, or kind of bleed into each other in the most volatile way. Yeah, but they're also highly networked spaces, like yeah. they're spaces of indiscriminate, promiscuous kind of contact, mm. and spaces where the network is also embodied, like it's it's a matter of a glance or a gaze mm. to kind of draw people into it. Mm. So there's a sense, there's this kind of incredible sense of these kind of gay cruising sites. It's almost like har- yeah. harbingers of the virtual. Yeah, and definitely the early internet as well, which yeah. was, you know, the early message boards, which mm. was just basically the early internet was so unregulated mm. 
and um, unsupervised. It was mm. almost like the community communities of interest yes, that yes, emerged organically, absolutely, absolutely. and spontaneously. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's a nice foreshadowing. And the way it kind of I mean, the serial killer's modus operandi too is to take blood from his victims and, and test them for AIDS and then mm. kill them depending on whether they have it. So again, it reminded me of Blade. Like there's this sense of this occult network. It's like the series envisages this network that is fluid, that mm. is above all. So you have these dank, underground, watery spaces that you see later in The Matrix. But also this network is a cult, this fluid network is a cult. So it's also a network of blood that may or may not be infected with the residues of these networked cruising spaces. So it's just it's an incredible kind of conceit for just like how public and private space and network space that blends the two yeah. felt on the cusp yeah. Of the millennium? Yeah. There's something, yeah, like you say, like emergent or, or imminent about imminent. this. Imminent. Absolutely. That's the other word. So this, imminent. Um, about this series. I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was I thought it was extraordinary. It was, like I it thought was, it was it was crazy. Mm. <laughs> it was absolutely crazy. Um, and also casting Lance Henriksen as, mm. as a protagonist is like it takes a lot of courage. Given yeah, yeah. His, you know, he's a very uh, unusual looking guy. He's mm. a real character actor. So casting him as your lead um, is I think pretty interesting mm. um but, but, I, but i thought it was yeah. as good as the x-files and, yeah. complete, and, and just i know it's got very it's very acclaimed by yeah. you know its fans and it's got very very good mm. ratings that i saw you know on different review websites and just beautifully captured that feeling of public and private space coalescing at mm. the time even the way in which like it it, it uses that william butler yates poem the second coming but yeah. even that is almost like becomes a forerunner of the network so it's like you know things fall apart the center cannot hold that mm. becomes the kind of harbinger again of a kind of decentered yeah. world. It's not that the center everything collapses, but that the world just becomes permanently decentered. Yeah, true. In a really so, true. I just, I think forever my heart will be in this <laughs> this pre millennial space and the hush. Like it's it's that hush of seventies conspiracy thrillers, mm. but a new kind of hush too. The sense that that the people who are listening might be more dispersed and invisible and networked than ever before. Like mm. a, a new kind of fear of being overheard mm. or a, a fear of speaking too loudly. Mm. Mm. And, but also a kind of a hush of awe in the face of some singularity yeah. that can't, can't be fully imagined. Yeah. It's the aesthetic of the pre-digital. It is, it's yeah. It's jam. But <laughs> the very pre-digital, the yeah. cusp of the pre-digital, yeah. Yeah, that moment before the gay cruising site becomes an online app. Yeah. You know, like that moment between physical. And it reminded me a lot of, Cruising, the William Friedkin film. Like, mm. I think that's also a film. Like, we've talked about this in the podcast, but I feel like, you know, William Friedkin films of the 70s, like The Exorcist, um, Sorcerer, they're all interested in massive global networks, mm. which then all come together in cruising mm. and, again, use that kind of gay cruising trope as a way to capture this new embodied network that's both yeah, indiscriminate and promiscuous and kind of unknowable. Mm. So mm. I thought this was... Yeah, it was a good recommendation. I actually think I did actually watch this in, okay, right. in high school. It was sort of one of those... You know, I, I was an early fan of The X-Files and mm. I do remember this probably screened later, maybe 9.30. Mm. Um, I do have memories of this and Can you uh, being advertised. So it was nice, but I, I'd not thought of it at all since maybe the first season of and screen, so. you couldn't be played because it's very hard you know we had to find a copy online because mm. you know or we watch a, we watch a dvd scare yeah. quotes but like it's you know it's not available anywhere no but that also makes it feel like an arcane text yes. itself i remember you said because during lockdown we watched all the exorcist films 
Um, I mean, watch The Exorcist 3. I remember you said that the fact that it was almost lost to time mm. made it feel more like an arcane object yeah. in and of itself. This feel, It feels like a relic. It does. This show with all the, the resonance that a relic has. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's like opening a time capsule. Yeah. You know, of millennial panic. Mm. You know, Y two K panic. But, but and the sublime. Yeah, but, and the sublime. Y two K sublime. And just, yeah. I just remember, I just remember, imagine being alone in a room in the nineties. No, you know, only the slightest network connection to the outside world. Watching this late at night, looking out the window and just thinking about what's out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, just, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's great. Yeah. I, it, it is such a worthy yeah. sequel to the X Files. Yeah. Well, I, I do know the little, the little uh, byline mm. for the X Files is the truth is out there. This yeah. one is. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the truth is out there, but who cares? Yeah, well, this one could be the truth is already in here. <laughs> yeah. That's how it feels. So, look, I I love this. I'm glad you yeah. liked it. What's your archive choice for next week? So, my archive choice is mm. I'm going to a classic, which I've never seen. Mm. I know almost nothing about, mm. except that it was enormously influential. Mm. Um, I'm not sure whether you've seen it. I think I suspect you might have, mm. but it'll be interesting to talk about. Hill Street Blues. I've only ever seen the pilot. Okay. And years ago. So, we... that. Interesting. So the kind of Mark Frost. Yeah. The Mark Frost canon. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Classic I feel, cop show. It's funny. I feel like we came so close to watching that because after high school, we watched all of Twin Peaks. Yeah. This, this is our schoolies. And I feel like at one point we were almost going to watch Hill Street Blues so. on VHS, but we never got around to yeah. it. I watched the pilot once on DVD. I have no memory of it. Yeah. Great. Well, fantastic. It's streaming now. So fantastic. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah. I. That's one I've wanted to watch for a long time or rewatch. So that's, that's going to be fantastic. So it's like Twin Peaks Heritage and... Yeah, crime procedural. Crime procedural. Brilliant. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club.